but not today. I remember. But Chuck Colson was uh, meeting with some prominent business leaders in a southeastern city, and thank goodness he doesn't tell us which southeastern city, uh, because you'll see as as I share this story with you, uh, it's pretty revealing. And he tells this story, and he calls this man Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith was a pillar in the community, very active in his local church, and he hosted a weekly Bible study luncheon for business leaders in the area. And he held it in his office. And Colson was in town to speak at the governor's prayer breakfast. And while he was in, Mr. Smith invited him to come to this Bible study luncheon uh, to talk to a group of business leaders uh, in the city. Colson says, right at 12 noon, the appointed hour, in walked 19 businessmen in dark suits, white shirts, conservative ties. They sat down in this conference room, and he said it was glass all on one side. And he said the view was breathtaking, and these men were looking out over the city that they owned and ran. And Colson was asked to speak for about 40 minutes and then leave the last 20 minutes for Q&A. And so Colson says somewhere in his talk, he starts talking about the sinful nature and the fact that each one of us in our nature are born deeply sinful. Colson said he started to see some people shifting in their seats, moving around like they getting a little uncomfortable uh, with what he was saying. And he said, sure enough, the first question he got right out of the gate was a man in the room that raised his hand and said this, Mr. Colson, you don't really believe we're sinners, do you? I mean, you're too sophisticated to be one of those hellfire and brimstone fellows. Another man added, put his hand up, intelligent people don't go for that backcountry preacher stuff. Colson replied, Sir, I believe that every one of us is desperately sinful. He goes on to say, what's inside each of us is really pretty ugly. In fact, we deserve hell and would get it if it weren't for the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Mr. Smith, the host of the luncheon, is distressed, as you can imagine at this point. And he pipes in and says, well, I don't know about that. I'm a good person, and I have been all my life. I go to church, and I exhaust myself all the time with my good works. At this point, you could have heard a pin drop in that conference room, and every eye was fixed on Chuck Colson. And they were waiting for him to respond. And listen to how he responds. He says, if you believe that, Mr. Smith, and I hate to say this, because it's not popular, and you will certainly not invite me back, but you are, for all your good works, further away from the kingdom of God than the people I work with in the prisons who are well aware of their own sins. In fact, gentlemen, if you think about it, we are really more like Adolf Hitler than Jesus Christ. Do you believe that tonight? As you sit here tonight in Brock form, do you believe that? Well, you should, because it's true. 
It's true because the Bible says it's true. And if you're not ready to believe that, or if you think that it's somehow just an opening illustration for shock value, or you think it's ludicrous, then friends, I hate to say it, but you're not ready for the Bible. Because that is very biblical. And it's, it's going to be revealed in this passage that Paul lays out for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Please stand in honor of God's word. And hear the word of God as it is found in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And it should be printed for you uh, on your outline. It's God's word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Rich in His mercy, being of the great love that which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up, raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us, In Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We know that it is true because you cannot lie. Uh, You are trustworthy, and so your word is trustworthy. And we pray that you would use your word to teach us, to open up our eyes, to change us. Father, to soften us. Would you do that? Would you be at work in our hearts uh, through your word tonight? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Alright, the city of Ephesus, just to give you a little history about uh, Ephesus, it was a city of about 250,000 people, which was a pretty big city for that day. It was also one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire outside of Rome. Not only that, it was home to one of, one of the largest buildings in the world at that time. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the Temple of Diana. And it stood at the center of the city of Ephesus. And inside the uh, Temple of Diana was actually the statue of Diana. It housed her statue. And she was a fertility goddess. And the priest would come and they would engage in all kinds of forms, as you can imagine, being a fertility goddess, all kinds of forms of immorality around that temple. And it was, it was really uh, a prominent uh, thing for people in Ephesus to do. They were, a lot of them were involved in worshiping uh, Diana and they were involved in this immorality that went along with worshiping her. And so here comes Paul 
and his companions into Ephesus preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Ephesians, to those who were involved in this cult, to those who were filled with all this immorality. And through Paul's preaching, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, dethroned Diana in the hearts of these people in Ephesus. And he turned the city upside down through the preaching of the gospel. Those that were at the church of Ephesus knew full well the grace of the gospel. They knew how far God had to reach in order to save them while they were dead in their sins. And so Paul, here in chapter 2, wants to remind those in Ephesus of the gospel. He wants to remind them of what the gospel has done for them and in them. And he is teaching them the same thing that we constantly need to learn over and over and over. And it's this. A profound understanding of the gospel, a profound understanding of Jesus, only comes as we see and feel our need for it. Did you hear that? A profound understanding of the gospel only comes as we see and feel our need for it. And so that's what Paul is doing. And to help us see our need, he starts with the bad news. And he starts by saying, in our first point, cheer up, you're a whole lot worse than you think. Look at verse 1 through 5. Literarily here, at the beginning of chapter 2, it's very interesting what Paul does. He begins his sentence in verse 1 and doesn't use a main verb. He holds off on using a main verb which is made alive holds off to verse 5 before he ever uses the main verb. Why? Well, here's what Paul is doing. Again, he holds off so that he can tell us how bad off we are by nature. He holds off because he wants to show us how unflattering we are by nature and give us a biblical, realistic picture of ourselves. And again, why does Paul do that? Because he knows that we'll never appreciate the gospel. That it'll never thrill our hearts and make them leap for joy unless we understand how desperate our condition is and how much we need him. So he starts off by saying that we're dead. Look at verse 1. He says that you were dead in your transgressions. And Sinclair Ferguson, he's a commentator, pastor, scholar. He's taught seminaries and all kinds of things. But he writes a a book, or it's kind of a Bible study on Ephesians. And in it, he talks about, he's from Scotland. One of his first trips to the U.S., he said he used to see this Grateful Dead sticker on all the cars. And he had no idea what it was. And he started, for the longest time, he said he thought it was some secret prayer society for the dead. And he, he just didn't know. And when we think about it, Paul, here's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that if you're not a Christian, if you don't have Jesus, it's as if you are walking around with a walking dead sticker on your life. You know, you might look good on the outside. Your grades might be better than anyone at Sanford. You might be in line for valedictorian here in a few years. You might have 
the greatest position on campus, president of SGA, your sorority, your fraternity, any organization that you're involved in. You might be a great moral person. You might be involved in all kinds of religious activities. But friends, Paul's saying if you don't have Jesus, you're dead. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. And you know this isn't very popular. This isn't a popular message. It's not exactly going to you know, bring in the, the masses. Turn on the TV and you'll see that it's not popular. There's a reason why Joel Osteen has 25,000 people coming. <laughs> He's not preaching this. I'm just being real honest. But it's the Word of God, and I'm called to be faithful to preach even the hard stuff, even the stuff I don't want to hear. Because it's what the Bible lays out for us. We don't like this. You know why we don't like it? Because we want to roll in our salvation. We want to play a part. It kills us to think that we're helpless. It goes against everything in us. And you know, it's really revealed in the gospel presentations that you hear. You've probably heard some of them over the years, but it really kind of reveals uh, this way of thinking. But here's, a, here's one I'll just throw out. You've probably heard it. But you know, you've probably heard of the guy. He's out in the ocean and he's drowning. And he's going under and God throws him a life preserver. And just at the last minute before the guy goes under... He grabs the life preserver and he's saved. Or one of my other favorites is you are sick and you're on your deathbed. You go to the hospital and God comes in with a spoonful of medicine. And if you take the medicine, you'll be saved. And so God opens your mouth and he's ready to pour the medicine down. But he won't pour it down until you say that you're you know, ready for him to pull it down or you want him to pour it down or you want him to do that. And then the, the presentation ends, will you take the medicine and be saved? What's wrong with those illustrations? They only paint a partial picture, don't they? Because the picture is far more grim than that according to what Paul's saying. It's far more dire. Paul doesn't say we're dying. Paul says that we're dead. And you know what? Dead people don't grasp for life preservers. <laughs> dead people don't swallow medicine. Dead people do nothing. Dead people don't move. That's the situation that Paul is laying out in this chapter. And as hopeless as it seems, I got bad news. Paul goes on. It gets worse. Paul doesn't stop. I wish he would. But he goes on and he gives us another image. He says we're enslaved. He says that we're helpless followers. Look at verses 2 and 3. You walk this way following the course of the world... The prince of the power of the air, which he's talking about Satan there. In short, Paul is saying that each one of us is born in bondage, enslaved to sin. You are born so ensnared to this attitude, this sinful nature, this attitude of sin, that you don't even realize that it's wrong. In fact, many of you have been rewarded your whole life 
for this attitude. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying that what's wrong with the world is you and me. It's not politics. It's not poverty. It's not crime. It's not racism. You know, see, we're always wanting to make it out outside of us. The problem is somehow outside of us. And Paul is bringing it right here. And saying, no, all those things are a result of people that are born in bondage and enslaved to sin and themselves. G.K. Chesterton has a great quote, and he says, The biggest problem in the world today is me. I'll never forget that quote by uh, Chesterton. And that's what basically Paul's saying. And I know some of you are thinking, Jason, just stop. I'm tired. Don't. No more. Cut it off. Pull the plug. Let's get out of here. Why am I doing this? Why is Paul doing this? Remember, he's giving us this depressing condition because he's saying that you'll never be healed by Jesus unless you realize that you're sick. Unless you see your desperation. It's Another way of saying it, it is you've got to realize the bad news in order to appreciate and see the good news. He goes on to talk about, in verse 3, our condemnation. And to me, this is the most chilling part of the passage. It's, it's very chilling, and I've said it before in the last couple weeks here. But Paul says that we were born by nature children of wrath. Now, that's pretty strong. And you know what that means? That means that we're not born good, like the news tells you. We're born basically bad. We're not born nice, innocent people. But we're born fighting and rebelling tooth and nail against God and His purposes. That's what the Bible teaches. So what's the solution? Well, some people say the solution's education. That we just, you just get more education, get smarter, so the society will be better and we'll sin less. Some people say it's the solution is politics and legislation. That if we can just get people to behave, if we can punish crime and promote good, then our society is going to get better. That's the key. Some people say medication, and I'm not opposed to medication, but but you know if, if medication, if you think it's going to do away with the sinful nature, we're wrong. But some people say, we're messed up, we just need to get on medication, you can't blame the person, and and so let's just medicate them. Well, a radical disease requires a radical remedy. Remedy. Think about it. If you got a cold, you take some NyQuil, sleep for 10 hours, drink some orange juice, you're better in a couple of days. If you've got the flu, it's a little bit worse. Trust me, I know some people in here have had it. I've had it. It lasts about five to seven days. Still drink a lot of liquids, a lot of orange juice, get some sleep. You'll get better. If you've got cancer, well, that's obviously a lot worse. Chemotherapy, uh, some other uh, treatment. But what about death? What's the solution for death? 
What do we do? You know what the solution for death is? Resurrection. That's our only hope. It's to be raised to new life. And that's exactly what God does for us, spiritually speaking. Now we could go home. But not yet. Because we've got to work this out. But that's the good news. God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that brings us to our second point. Cheer up. You're more loved than you ever dared dream. And this is really the emphasis in the passage. The emphasis is on this fact on what God has done for us. If you look in verse 4, Paul says, But God... Then he goes in verse 5 and says, In God we're made alive. We are raised from death to life. We sung this earlier tonight. Remember the song in Can It Be? Our chains fell off. Our heart broke free. I rose and followed thee. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that in Jesus... God does for us what we could never do in ourselves. He says there is a way out of this bondage. There is a way out of this death. And it rests totally on God. And has nothing to do with you. He actually resurrects us. Just imagine, we're in the morgue. We're down, getting ready to be put in the freezer. And God comes and puts the paddles on you. And resurrects you to new life. You see the picture? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Look at verses 5 through 9. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is saying, he goes to great pains here to say that salvation is not a transaction between you and God. No. Paul is saying that he, everything God did, that you absolutely did nothing, even your faith is a gift. And so when we stand before God, it is not one foot on God. That's what I thought. That's my testimony. I thought, God, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's great. But also, I've done some pretty good things. And wrong answer. It is both feet on God saying, there's no room for boasting. Everything that I have is because of you. You have given me everything, even my faith, to believe in you. Think of it this way. Here's the way I like to think about it. And I shared this same illustration when I spoke in chapel last year. So if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. But... uh, When you became a Christian, think of it this way. You looked up and you saw God's face and He asked you, do you want to live? And you say, of course, I want to live. And so you said yes. That's the part of the story you remember. That's the part that you participated in. But it's later that you realize there's some family history that you're learning. And you're learning that there's more of a backstory. And you realize that your backstory is this, that you were lying on the bottom of the ocean, not dying, but dead, lifeless. God swam down, pulled you to shore, laid you on the beach, and breathed life into you. And you sputtered death from your lungs, 
And then he looked at you and said, do you want to live? And of course, you responded and said yes. And you responded to that call and you lived. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. We're going to wrap it up here. Paul uses, this is, this is the good part. You've got to hang with me because this is amazing. And this ought to get your blood pumping. Not only if it hadn't, if it's not already, and the fact that we're made alive and resurrected. Look at verses five and six. Paul uses three verbs to talk about what God has done for us. Made alive in verse five. In verse six, he says raised up, and then he also says made us to sit with him. And these three uh, things that he's describing actually parallel to the successive historical events in the life of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Called the resurrection, the ascension, and the session. Okay? The resurrection made us alive. The ascension raised us up. The session, which means to made us to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. That's why in the Apostles' Creed, if you're familiar with that, that's why it says on the third day He rose again from the dead and He was raised and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So we see those three events. But here's what's interesting. Notice who Paul's talking about. He's not talking about Jesus. Paul's saying, this is you. He's talking about us being raised up to new life, ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Now that'll make your head spin. But Paul is getting at one of the central tenets in the Christian faith. All throughout this passage, all throughout the Bible, you see this phrase, in Him, in Christ... It's what theologians call union with Christ. And I believe that it is the best description of what it really means to be a Christian. This idea of union with Christ. And here's what it means. It means that Jesus and His people are so closely connected that whatever is true of Jesus is true of them as well. Let me say that again. Union with Christ means that Jesus and His people are so closely connected that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you as well if you're a Christian and you're here tonight. Did you hear that? That will make you sing. That will make you rejoice. That will make you live differently. Was Jesus raised up? Absolutely. Then you were raised. As He ascended, then that's true of you as well. Is He seated? Seated? Yeah, is that a word? Is He seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Is He ruling? There is a sense in which you are up there ruling with Him, spiritually speaking. Friends, have you ever heard anything like this? You know what? This is far from dry and it's far from boring. If we get this, this is your antidote for assurance. This is your antidote for your lack of holiness, for your struggle with sin, for your heartbreak, for everything. Understanding what Jesus has done 
in the fact that we're united to Him. Jesus doesn't stand far off from you. He's not aloof from you. Jesus buys you back. Jesus clothes you, adopts you, and marries you. And all that is His becomes yours if you're in Christ. There's a story by the man of uh, by the man by a man named Norman Vincent Peale. I don't agree with this theology at all, but it's a good story. And he tells about a time when he was in Korea and he's walking by this tattoo booth. And as he's walking by the booth, he says he sees a tattoo and it just blows his mind and he he can't get his mind around it because he's saying these three words he saw that would be tattooed to a person's body forever. And the words were born to lose. He's so beside himself that he walks into the tattoo parlor and he asks the Korean man in the tattoo shop, do people really come in here and get that tattoo? The Korean man said, yes, some do. He goes... No way. How could somebody come in here and get born to lose tattooed on their body? And the Korean man in broken English said, The four tattoo on body, tattoo already on mind. What's tattooed on your mind tonight? Is it defeat in despair Do you feel like a slave to sin? Is it unbelief? Is your what tattooed what's tattooed on your mind? Is it how sinful you are and how screwed up you seem to be? Or is what what is tattooed on your mind this? Is it power? Is it the fact that you are united with Jesus? in His resurrection, in His ascension, and in His session, and how you are no longer a slave to sin, but you've been made alive through Jesus. Listen to what Paul says again, how he describes the Christian. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian tonight, this is what Paul once tattooed on your mind. And friends, when this is tattooed on your mind, joyful obedience will be the result. Victory over sin and a life of joy. Your heart will leap if we understand what Jesus has done for us by uniting us to Himself. You think about that. Let me pray. Father, I think about the song we sang right before we heard.
heard from you in your word and your amazing grace, and it truly is amazing. Lord, would you thrill our hearts anew with uh, the goodness of your grace, the greatness of your power. Remind us of all that is ours because of Christ and his work on the cross. Would we rejoice, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. As we sing this last song, would we sing it from our hearts? Would we praise you for what you've done? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all please stand? We're going to finish up.